Shalom, and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. Fine. Uh, because I know uh, that there are a lot of different ideologies. There are a lot of different opinions about borders, where they should, where they shouldn't be. Um, but I wanted to leave this as broad a definition uh, to, to, that we can work with as possible. Okay, so again, the recognition of a Jewish peoplehood, the recognition of, of as a people, the right to a nation state, and that nation state should be in the, our ancient homeland, which is the land of Israel. Okay. So now that we've discussed, you know, this term Zionism, where is it, where does it come from? What is it? Um, what can we understand from it? You know, we, uh, I think it's talked about a lot that, that Zionism is an ancient idea, right? The Zionism has been with us for 3000 years. It's been the guiding principle of the Jewish people. Um, and to that claim, I would just say that it might be a little bit more complicated uh, than that. So what's a traditional view, right? This idea of, of the Jewish people that was spread all over the world after the exile, this destruction of the second temple. What does traditional Judaism have to say for centuries? What did rabbinical Judaism say about rebuilding a Jewish homeland here in the land of Israel? Um, um, so we're going to go back here. And, and if you thought you were going to get through a, a class of a rabbinical student without just a little bit of Talmud, uh, you might have come to the wrong place. But um, the, the traditional viewpoint on uh, creating a Jewish homeland after the exile in the land of Israel can be found in the Babylonian Talmud in Masechet Ketubot, page 111a, if you're going to look for it afterwards. And in the conversation, um, when uh, there's a conversation going on about a lot of different things, as the Talmud does, but what basically... Uh, the conversation turns and says, when Israel went into exile for the second time, when the Romans destroyed the temple and Jews were spread all over the earth, there were three vows made, right? Three promises made between heaven and earth. The first is that Israel would not, quote, go up like a wall. So Israel, this, this land wouldn't be conquered by massive force, okay? The second is that God made Israel, the people of Israel, swear that they would not rebel against the nations of the world. This is where we get the concept of Judaism, perhaps you've heard of it, uh, called Dina Malchuta Dina, right? The, the law of the land is the law that we have to respect the customs of the laws of wherever we live. And the third is that God made the non-Jews swear not to oppress Israel too much. That's uh, a translation of a Hebrew phrase in there. And so with these three vows in mind, traditional rabbinical Judaism taught that uh, the return to the land of Israel would be part of the messianic process, right? That rebuilding the Jewish uh, nation state, the Jewish kingdom, the Jewish temple would come only with the arrival of Messiah. So we see that the law prescribed one method of behavior, but I think we can, as, as you can all think to yourself, well, wait, what about all the times and everything that I do as a Jew today that always remind me of Zion, of Israel, right? Land of Israel. Think about your synagogue at, at, Temple Israel, the you pray always oriented towards Jerusalem. And wherever you are in the world, we orient ourselves spiritually towards Jerusalem, towards the Holy Land. And the Haggadah every year that we just said a few weeks ago, we end with right? We can say, well, it's just purely, it's an aspiration that they don't mean in Jerusalem. Maybe, but the soul was calling for that, right? We, we see that in the words of the famous um, Andalusian uh, Jewish poet Yehuda Levi that writes, Libiba Mizrach. In the 12th century, he says, my heart is in the East, right? I'm in the West, but my heart in the East. And we see over the years, different Jewish figures, uh, Yudah Levi, the Rambam, Maimonides, taking themselves from where they lived outside and taking themselves to the land of Israel. 
So when it, when we sing in a tikkun for the national anthem, right, in the Jewish soul, right, it, there's a yearning in the Jewish soul that really reflects the feeling. So perhaps the law prescribed one thing, but the idea of return and not just a return uh, of someday along, like a real physical return, flesh and blood, the Jews back in the land of Israel, um, would uh, would um, would be accomplished. That's part of this vision. So. We define Zionism just a little bit of taste of like of of how through the centuries this idea was was um, considered, but now let's move forward in history. Let's move into time period in, in, into which the idea uh, of Zionism is born. That means we need to go f- um, into the world of the Jews in Europe of the nineteenth century. So let's think about for a second. Let's cons- um, what's going on. Uh, we'll go back to the. Um, slides here for a moment. So if you can see the, the slide here, this is the percentage uh, distribution. Of we can see that almost 90% of global Jewry is located in Europe. And a huge majority, some like two thirds of that, perhaps more, is located in what was then called the Russian Empire, right? Places today, and mainly the Pale of Settlement, places today that are parts of Russia, Lithuania, Belarusia, Ukraine, and Poland. This is where the most of uh, Jews around the world are located. And so alongside of that, most of Jewish creativity and Jewish life and, and Jewish uh, political power is also located uh, in Europe during uh, the 19th century. Um, and over the last 200 years, really 150 years of European history, the Jewish communities of Europe have gone, undergone a sea change. Um, two, excuse me, two primary phenomena have influenced the lives of the Jews of Europe in, in extreme ways and, and have completely changed Jewish methods of living, um, Jewish worship, Jewish communal living, uh, all everything about Jewish life has shifted in these 150 years. And these two primary phenomena, they're called, the first is called emancipation. And emancipation is the granting of individual rights to Jews in modern European nation states. For centuries, Jews lived as part of corporate entities under the uh, tutelage, under the protection of, of one leader. So let's say the prince of some German state would sign a contract with this group of Jews, it says you have the right to live here, to build here, to do these types of labor, all of this, I will protect you while you're doing. But all of a sudden, there's no, we're losing these principalities, the nation state is being created, and there's a new distinction as a citizen. And all of a sudden, the Jews are let in. The first place this happens is in France during the French Revolution. All of a sudden, the question is, okay, now we no longer have a king, we have a government who derives its power from the people, what are we going to do with these Jews, right? Are they French? Are they not French? Do they belong, not belong? And each European country will go through a process of asking themselves these questions. In the, in, in the, the parlance at the time and the way that people spoke at the time, this was called the Jewish question. And each country was going to come to a, to a different uh, um, set of um, decisions about the Jewish question and different types of Jews, right? Different groups of Jews are going to come to a different answer about the Jewish question. And the factory for, um, oh, I just wanted to show you one thing, that this is the, a map of the um, waves of emancipation that Jews underwent in Europe um, during uh, the, over the centuries in, in Europe. Um, as you can see, the vast majority of states in yellow are those where Jews got full rights, We're talking about voting rights, uh, rights to housing and things of that sort, um, only in the, the 19th century. We see a few latecomers, such as uh, um, will become the Russian uh, Empire, will then become the USSR. And we see one really early outlier, which is this Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth back in the 13th century. But that, of course, is a, a session for another time and another day. Um, but this, this process happened, really happened in, in stages over the course of the 19th century. And so Jews, um, this, this idea of emancipation is described by um, Yaakov Katz, who's an incredibly famous Israeli uh, historian, as leaving the ghetto, right? Not only the physical ghetto, the physical places where Jews were kept by law, could only live in, 
but also the ideological ghetto and needing modernity, needing rapidly modernized European society. And that process is what we call the Haskalah, the Jewish enlightenment. And this is led by thinkers, such names you've heard of, Moses Mendelssohn, um, uh, Abraham Geiger, who's the founder of reform, the ideological grandfather of reform Judaism. Zacharia Frankel is the ideological grandfather of conservative Judaism. Raphael Sampson Hirsch, uh, modern orthodoxy. Um, so all of these figures are born into this European world of Haskalah, Jewish enlightenment. And it's, and it's these, two, um, these two processes, emancipation, right? This taste of, of, of uh, equal standing in society alongside this incredible um, uh, laboratory of Jewish ideas and creativity that come because of this and the responses of, of Jews to their changing reality. Um, for most Jews, for so many Jews, emancipation promised equal existence in European society. You can keep your God, you can keep your worship practices, you can keep your temples and synagogues, you can be a German of the Mosaic faith, you can be a Frenchman of the, of the Mosaic faith, you can be a Swede of the Mosaic faith, but you can be a little bit of both. The question was, can this promise be upheld? Um, some places it was incredibly successful. Um, German states, you know, take, just take the Mendelssohn family, as I mentioned, Moses Mendelssohn, this incredible philosopher that changes the Jewish world, but also the wider intellectual world. Two Because, he was, because his father was worried that the social barriers would be too much for him to overcome. So you have a political promise, right? And, you, and, and we start to behave like Germans, but there's still barriers. So this idea of emancipation, it's never, it, it, there, it's, um, there always seems to be a barrier to the promise of, of what that is. Um, in Eastern Europe, the process is much slower emancipation. I wish I could say more, but I want to get into the heart of the, um, the heart of what we came to talk about today um, before. Uh, so we just have a lot of time to, to give to that. So 1880 in Europe, there's some, there are, most Jews are living in a place where they have some or full rights of citizenship and their countries of residence, their countries of origin, many of them. And so many people, not just Jews, right? This, this period, the, the belly puck, right? The beautiful age, right? This, this age of optimism and hope for changing and making a beautiful and ideal future is, is this laboratory into which um, nationalisms, including Jewish nationalism, which we'll call Zionism, are born. And as I said, this is where sort of we start to see political Zionism, the way we understand Zionism today, bubble to the fore. Um, two rabbis very famously write in the 19th century, the first, and I'm sorry, I won't have time to go into these, these many deeper, but Yehuda Alkali, who's writing in Damascus in 1840, and Rabbi Tzvi Kalisher, who's writing in what's today um, Eastern Germany, both buck years of uh, generations of rabbinical tradition and start to write from a religious perspective that there might be some value to Jews getting up from where they are and moving to the Holy Land. This is, this is heavily significant um, uh, because we'll see that later generations of religious thinkers build on them. A third name, just to mention quickly, um, for those of you who are looking for uh, uh, another interesting work, Moshe Hess in 1862 um, writes a book called Rome and Jerusalem. Uh, and he began his life as a devoted Marxist socialist, um, sort of moves away from the Marx and Engels of the world over the years. Um, and he writes this book, which he calls for a reestablishment of a Jewish commonwealth in Palestine, because he's come to recognize that it's not a class struggle that's defined humanity. Rather, it's a struggle between the nations. And that's what Hess um, writes in his 62, 1862 work, Roman Jerusalem. So none of these, I only bring these works to say there's, there's something bubbling, right? There's, this, there's an idea that's percolating, not quite totally formed, but and. But significantly, none of these three works are, are, are turned into calls to action by a larger public. Right? There isn't a great response to these works. Nothing comes of them. And, and that's why this next point that I'm going to mention, this becomes a turning point. So 
say 1880 because 1881 in Jewish historical terms marks a huge turning point. In 1881, uh, a series of events, um, <clears throat> the gentleman on your left hand of the screen is Tsar Alexander II, known as the, uh, the liberator. He frees the serfs, emancipates the Jews. And in 1881, he's um, assassinated by a group of um, anarchists, uh, an organized band of anarchists trying to overthrow the Tsarist rule. Um, beg your pardon. And, and that, um, that death and assassination is blamed on um, generally the Jews. Um, there was one Jewish uh, member of this organization and, um, you know, uh, but the, the blame was placed firmly at the, the feet of the Jews. And this, this um, kicked off a series of pogroms that, come, that are written down in Jewish history, as you can see on the right, as Sufot Benegev, the storms of the South, a wave of, of concentrated and violent pogroms that the Jewish community of Russia, again, the majority of world Jewry had not yet seen. There'd always been violence and persecution and different things, but the, the vigor and the violence and, and the organized nature of, of the whole thing really took these communities by surprise and it prompted everyone into a great deal of action. The Jews were then forced to make a decision. And we, we, we consider this a turning point because after 1881, most Jews made a decision to change their life in some way. Okay. You had to react to this new reality in, in one of several ways. The first stay and pray, do as our ancestors have always done. You might remember the, the line from a fiddler on the roof. When, you know, they say, Rabbi, why, why can't we stay here? Why are they making us lead of Anatevka? And he says, well, we've waited, been waiting for Messiah for so long. We might just need to wait somewhere else. And that's a very traditional, very ultra-Orthodox response to this. So there's a, there's a section of the Jewish world that decides to that. There's a section of the Jewish world that decides to immigrate. I imagine many of um, your ancestors have their roots in Eastern uh, Europe. And this is where the huge wave, somewhere near 2 million um, Jews leave Eastern Europe and come to North America between 1881 and 1920 when the gates of immigration are closed. Um, some choose to assimilate. Some decide that this being Jewish is just not worth it in a new modern European society like Felix Mendelssohn. Some people um, assimilate, convert, and just try to be one of uh, the people uh, living in, uh, you know, living in wherever they were found. Um, some people turn to Right. So uh, socialists, you know, along the, the range of um, from, you know, uh, sort of democratic. So. Russia, uh, who's who's spoken language is Yiddish, um, a very interesting, uh, different take on Jewish nationalism that we don't unfortunately have time to go into today. Um, but the last and not least is Zionism. Um, the first work of Zionist literature that, that creates what I called earlier, a call to action, is released in 1882, a year after the horrible pogroms by a man named Leo, Leo Pinsker. And he calls it auto-emancipation. And as you can guess from the title, um, he, he writes it, it's called auto-emancipation, subtitle, uh, a warning to my fellow Jews. And he sums up how the Jews are, he, he says, listen, we have, there's no future for us here. He's like, let me tell you how the Jews are viewed here in Russia, in Europe. He sums it like, he says, he wrote uh, thusly, to the living, the Jew is a corpse, to the native, a foreigner, to the homesteader, a vagrant, to the, uh, to the proprietary, a beggar, to the poor, an exploiter, and a millionaire, to the patriot, a man without a country, for all the hated rival. And, and Pinsker said, if that's what we are, if we're the opposite of everyone, if we're every, if, if we're the epitome of it, the enemy for everyone, then we need to do something on our own. Um, and he, he writes this book. He joins an organization called Chibat Zion, the first organized Zionist organization uh, in Europe. Um, it's founded in 1882, Chibat Zion in Russia. The first organized group with a goal of making Aliyah, taking young people and moving them to the land of Israel. Um, during, so 1881 is when we look back at uh, um, uh, the waves of immigration to Israel. And we'll have this date in mind again in 1881 for the next few weeks. But from 1881 to 1896, so 15 years, there's active immigration to the land of Israel. 
there's some small groups, but there's no global movement. There's no organized Zionist movement, right? There's no, um, and, and Zionism as, as a movement, it's, it's an idea that's making the headlines of papers and people are writing about it to one another, but it's not become a, a, a dominant ideological. And here we get to the, the crux of, 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 our, uh, of our issue today. And um, organized Zionism, the organized Zionist movement. What we're going to do is we're going to break it down into five different streams, all right? Mainly for the purposes of organization. But I, I really want to, really important to me to say from the outset that each of these streams um, is uh, influenced by one another. They learn from one another. They shift in response to one another over the years. The, um, the figures, the, the, the people that I'll name, they corresponded with each other. Some of them liked one another. Some of them hated one another. Um, and, and, but the state of Israel has been shaped by all of these people and, and all of the um, ideologies we're going to speak about today. Um, and just as a, a side note, this is a very Eurocentric look. Most of Zionist thought is born out of, of Europe. Um, there's an, there's another, I'm sure, amazing, uh, set of sessions here of talking about, uh, Zionism amongst Jews living in Muslim countries at the time. Um, but alas, uh, we only have uh, an hour together today. So, um, we'll get, uh, to our, our, our first stream and introduce you to this gentleman here, uh, whose name I'm sure many of you have heard, Benjamin Theodore, um, uh, Zev Herzl. Um, you can see he lives a very short life from 1860 to 1904, um, but he'll accomplish quite a bit. Um, this is the iconic pose of him before the first Zionist Congress in Basel, uh, Switzerland. Um, thinking, posing, this is where you see most of his, uh, this is the image you see most of him um, uh, today in Israel. So Theodore Herzl is the founder of political Zionism. People call him here the visionary of the state. What does that mean? Herzl was a German Jew. What does that mean in that time? It means that he was, he, he knew he was a Jew, but everything that he did was German. He spoke German. He studied in German. He wrote in German. He produced like, everything. He lived the life of a middle to middle upper class German, right? But always was aware that he himself was a Jew. As part of the Jewish intelligentsia, he and his peers kept running into these barriers, right? They did all the right things. They dressed correctly. They wore the correct hats. They wore the correct dinner gloves. They knew which fork to use at dinner, right? And yet they still couldn't get full entry into society. And over the course of years, it doesn't happen. There's a romantic story uh, that's told about Herzl here in Israel that he goes to uh, the Dreyfus affair, the trial of Alfred Dreyfus, the Jewish uh, officer in the French army who's accused of treason against France and um, wrongly accused, it turns out. And Herzl goes to the trial and changes his mind, and Zionism is the answer. And well, I, I try not to ruin a good story with facts. Um, it seems that he had been, his ideology had been really developing into Zionism for years up until that point. It was, a, it was an influential experience for him, but it was not, uh, you know, as they, said, as they tell him the stories. But over the decades, he comes to the realization that it's a part of European society that the Jew, will just never be accepted. Jews will never be fully part of, of uh, European society. And, you know, the solution to the problem, he thought the solution to the problem for years was to speak correctly, to learn in the right places, to, to, to practice the right professions. But after so many years of doing that, he said, well, this clearly isn't going to work. I am who I am, and yet I still can't uh, be accepted here. And so he writes a pamphlet uh, called Der Judenstaat in 1896, the Jewish state. And he outlines a solution to the Jewish problem. Again, the Jewish problem, as it was called at the time. And that solution is the creation of the, 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 the equation is out of balance, right? Jews have no power. What is power? Power is the nation state. And when Jews have a nation state, they can be powerful and play on terms of the world. And we should say with Herzl, he was from West Europe. He was very condescending towards his Eastern European Jewish brethren. He saw them as peasants and uneducated. And so he saw this future of the state where uh, it was a German speaking country with, with German institutions, this, this huge working class would pour from Eastern Europe. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's beautifully 
um, idealistic uh, and wonderfully naive to read a uh, hundred years later, more than a hundred years later, because um, with with, with uh, the, uh, the 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 gift of hindsight. Um, but regardless of whether his vision, you know, could hold up to modern scrutiny, eighteen ninety six he writes a pamphlet, and already within a year, in eighteen ninety seven, he had organized the first Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland. 200 participants show up from 17 European countries. It's a smack, it's a huge success. Um, and uh, this becomes the beginning of the World Zionist Organization, right? Almost uh, sort of on a lark, this, this sort of middling journalist and playwright who was not well respected in this time has organized a global movement. Um, the way that Herzl saw to, to the way that Herzl believed uh, that we would arrive to the Jewish state was to utilize the, again, he saw the state as power. And so the, the, the most powerful entities at the time were the empires, Great Britain, uh, Germany, Austro-Hungary, uh, the Russian empire. And so he wanted to use diplomatic means because he, he thought it was, it was self-evident. Listen, you have a Jewish problem. We Jews have a Jewish problem. I'll solve your Jewish problem for you. Just give me a state, give me a land and we'll fix it. We'll make ourselves better. Or you'll get rid of us. You don't want us anymore. So we'll, this this is self-evident. It'll work for you. Now, of course, superpowers and states don't necessarily work on that sort of timeline. And so we never got the, the uh, support he wanted. Um, but um, um, another important thing to, to mention about Herzl is that his Zionism, his vision for the state, when we define Zionism, we said the Jews have a right to a nation state in their ancient homeland. Herzl was a little less concerned about the where. He was very, uh, um, very famously, he brings a, a, uh, an offer of some land in Africa called the Uganda Plan, uh, parts of Kenya and Uganda, I believe today, to the Sixth Zionist Congress in 1903 and is shouted down and is heavily opposed by the Eastern parties from uh, that are a little bit more religious. Um, and remember, he's a little, he's less uh, versed in Jewish practice and ritual. He's from Western Europe, more secular. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, it's interesting to look back at Herzl's Zionism. Um, and he never fully embraces um, the need for it to be the land of Israel. Um, he doesn't live very long. He dies in 1904, uh, only about seven years after, uh, eight years after he starts his work in Zionism. And he doesn't see any of his vision come true. Um, that said, um, his, his protege, Chaim Weizmann, really takes the reins of the Zionist organization for him. And because of his vision of political Zionism, where the great powers will uh, be the, the ones that help us through, Weizmann is a huge uh, contributor to what the Balfour Declaration, the declaration by the United Kingdom at the end of, near the end of World War I that says that His Majesty's government looks favorably upon um, a Jewish state in uh, Palestine. Um, two huge accomplishments for political Zionism that we can say. One, he organized it. Without Herzl, there is no world Zionist organization. There's no global organized, maybe there is, but we don't know, right? He's the one that brings it all together. The second, as I mentioned, were real diplomatic victories by not Herzl himself, but his protégés come later down the line. And so for each Zionism, just to bring this to the close as I, as I sum these up, um, Zionism, uh, like any national movement, um, and a lot of movements at the time in Europe really looked at the world. And they say, we've recognized a problem. I'm going to offer you the solution. And I'm going to offer you the means of action, that solution. So we're going to sum up each stream just so we have it a little bit more um, uh, uh, manageable, all this information I'm throwing your way. Political Zionism's basic problem is Jews will never be fully accepted and will never reach their full potential in Europe. Okay. So the solution is the creation of the Jewish state to rebalance that equation. And the way that we're gonna get there is we're gonna utilize the great powers, the great empires that existed at the time of Herzl um, to, to reach um, their ends. This is political Zionism of Herzl. And please, again, if there are questions, stop me. I just looking at the time, I'm just gonna keep moving here, but please write in the chat, um, raise your hand, anything. Um, you can get uh, Rabbi Dreyfus's attention as well and he'll stop me, um, but we're just gonna keep moving along here. Um, the second stream we'll talk about is what's called cultural Zionism, all right? Also called in Hebrew, Sionut um, Wuchanit, meaning uh, um, spiritual Zionism. 
And the figurehead, uh, I'm going to give you one figurehead to sort of attach with all these movements. And the, the figurehead I need you to remember is a gentleman named Asher Ginsburg by birth. But he gives himself a pin name, Achad Ha'am, which means one of the people. Now, I'll let you make the judgments on what someone who willingly gives himself the pen name, Achad Ha'am, says about the ego of this individual. Uh, but nevertheless, um, this, this uh, Achad Ha'am was less concerned about the lack of European acceptance of Jews, right? Yeah, okay, so it's there, right? There's always been Jew hatred, all these things going on. His biggest concern was a loss of Jewish identity, right? That the outside world that modernity has offered such uh, attractive things that, that Jews are losing their Jewishness, they're losing their connection to what it means to be a Jew. In order to fix that, Haram grasps onto Zionism, to nationalism, to fix this, to keep the cultural and national identity of the Jews intact. Now, again, crucially, it's important to mention, he is a secular Jew. He's not religious. He doesn't see religion as the answer to hold Jews inside the Jewish bubble. He sees the national identity, right? The national identity based around living in the land of Israel and critically speaking Hebrew, speaking the language of the Jews. For him, Nationalism was about land and it was about language. This is how a nation created its identity. Rather than looking towards a state, what he wanted to build was he wanted to create reinvigorated Jews living in Israel, speaking Hebrew. And the way to do this was not a state, rather a, a, a center, right? A center of Jewish creativity and identity and, and, and um, thought writing, art, language, literature, whatever it may be, right? But to create Jews that are connected to their homeland, connected to their ancient language, connected to their ancient roots, and that way will be reinvigorated. Um, the ultimate goal of by creating the spiritual center that eventually this would lead to uh, a Jewish majority in the area, but a Haram is less concerned about where the borders were, what the state was. He, he, saw the necessity of Jews on the ground, living as Jews, speaking Hebrew in the land of Israel. And he saw Herzl as just the as hopelessly naive. He was very critical of Herzl. He sees putting his faith in the great powers as naive. Haram didn't want to trust anyone except the Jews. He wanted self-reliance was a huge piece of, of building a new homeland. Um, now, Haram did incredible things and wrote, you know, wonderful, uh, you know, contributed to the spirit of Tel Aviv and that's city's founding. But there's no doubt that the most significant thing that cultural Zionism leaves for us today as Israelis and as Jews globally is the dedication to the Hebrew language as the spoken language of the Jewish nation. Um, one of um, Haram's disciples, Eliezer ben Yehuda, um, moves to Palestine in 1881. Um, he's uh, from Europe, obviously. And, and over the years, he sees all these different Jewish groups speaking different languages, not being able to get along with one another. He comes convinced that Hebrew is the answer. And he becomes uh, the person accredited with, with rebuilding the Hebrew language in, in modern times to be a spoken tongue. Um, <laughs> he, he, even in 1898, when Herzl comes for the one and only time in his uh, journey to the Holy Land to see this place that he's been talking about, Herzl meets Ben Yehuda. And uh, they talk about you know, Zionism and Judaism and, and the Jewish question. And Herzl dismisses Ben Yehuda as an absolute fool. There's no way, like Herzl's, Herzl's vision is this is going to be a German-speaking country. But Ben Yehuda and Achad Am and others like him really push this, this Hebrew, um, uh, the, the, the learning of Hebrew forward. And um, by let's say the late 20s and early 30s, um, that has become self-evident. The Hebrew will be the spoken language. But it takes some time, right? Even when the first um, universities are founded, the Hebrew University, I think in 1923, there's a question, what's going to be uh, taught and what, which subjects are going to be, you know, what's going to be the language of instruction? They, they get to Hebrew eventually, calling it the Hebrew University, right? That's the significance of it. Um, but it, it wasn't, a, a, it, it, we definitely, we should not take that for granted. Um, Chada'am, when Herzl dies in 1904, Chada'am, together with Chaim Weizmann, I previously mentioned, they take over the World Zionist Organization. So they really steer it through the teens, through World War I. Um, they'll be significant in its leadership. Um, and, and so, again, summing up um, cultural Zionism, again, just putting it into, you know, the, the problem. Jewish culture and people are in need of reinvigoration. 
the solution is the creation of a spiritual homeland of Israel that would eventually yield something like a state. Again, maybe not with borders, maybe not an army, maybe under someone's empire, but we a majority Jewish place in the land of Israel. The way we're going to do this is self-reliance, reinvigorating language and culture, freeing Jews from the from the influence of the diaspora. Right? Um, the, all, a lot of these movements in, in common share a great skepticism of Europe, a great skepticism of the diaspora. They really look towards getting rid of the old Jew and creating the new Jew, the, the, the land of Israel Jew, the Jew that um, doesn't no longer speaks and eats and thinks like they did in Europe, but thinks anew. Right? That's a big part of Hadam. Um, goodness, there's just so much to tell about, and there's never enough time, but we'll keep moving along here. Um, moving under a third stream, uh, labor Zionism, all right? Um, this stream's roots, I mentioned earlier, Moshe Hess's work, Roman Jerusalem. This is the first inspiration for what becomes labor Zionism. Written in the 1860s, this is this, uh, uh, of, of Israel. But two of the thinkers who are most credited with building off the work of Moshe Hess and building what we know as labor Zionism today, is on the left, you have a gentleman named there. On the right, a gentleman named A.D. Gordon. And if you come to Tel Aviv, not if, when you're in Tel Aviv next time, look for the streets. Borochov and Gordon Street are one another in Tel Aviv, uh, named after these two gentlemen. And um, there, Borochov on the left, um, he wrote um, about. Jewish society as ill. Jewish society is a sick patient um, because it exists in what he called an inverted triangle, right? Most societies, he said, are in a triangle form with the peasants, right? The lower classes, the middle classes. This, the way that we've been forced to live in Europe, the Jewish triangle is flipped. There's so few Jewish peasants, right? So few Jews work the land because laws of most countries stop Jews from being have stopped Jews from being farmers for years and years, a growing Jewish class, but then you have landed Jews, right? Uh, accountants and bankers and professors. And, and he said, that's wonderful. But what about this? What about this bottom half, right? We need to invert this triangle. We need to make workers out of the Jews. We need to reconnect them particularly to their homeland. And this is the way we fix the Jewish people. It can only be done through the Jewish land. A.D. Gordon famously turns relate labor into a religion. He's a um, very socialist set of ideas, right? Where, where labor replaces the Jewish religion almost in, in, uh, in, in Jewish society. He, he has this incredibly romantic view of, of Jewish peasant-led society and, and he becomes a folk hero amongst the early kibbutznikim. Um, he and Borokhov together, their ideas are what contributed in 1909 to creating the first what becomes kibbutz, Deganya, right by the Sea of Galilee, up in the northern part of the, uh, the country here. And A.D. Gordon, even in his shocking image here, even in his old age, he continued to work at these places. He would go and visit the youth and work side by side with them. And he was a huge point of um, inspiration uh, for these young people, these, these idealists who saw the ultimate idealist actually doing the things that he preached. Um, Another name that uh, I'll mention here, and we'll come up uh, in a few minutes here, is a man named um, Joseph Trumpeldor. Trumpeldor was, a, was an early adopter of labor uh, Zionism. And, and he, in my mind, best summed up the labor ideology. And this is what he wrote. He said, what is a pioneer, right? Because they call themselves pioneers. This is the Hebrew word they use. What is a pioneer? Is he a worker only? No. The definition includes much more. The pioneers should be workers, but that is not all. We shall need people who will be everything, everything that the land of Israel needs. A worker has his labor interests. Interests. A soldier has his esprit de corps. A doctor and an engineer, their special inclinations. What we need is a generation of iron men, iron from which you can forge everything the national machinery needs. You need a wheel. Here I am. A nail, a screw, a block. Here, take me. You need a man to till the soil. I'm ready. A soldier, I'm here. Policeman, doctor, lawyer, artist, teacher, water carrier, any of them, I'm here. I have no form. I have no psychology. I have no personal feeling, no name. I am a servant of Zion, ready to do everything, not bound to do anything. I have only one aim, creation. 
And that is labor Zionism at its ideal best, sacrificing yourself, right? The individual meant nothing. It was about the collective. It was about building uh, a Jewish socialist workers paradise, right? Jews working the land to, to redeem the soil and be redeemed by the soil. By sticking our fingers literally into the land of Israel, we would be coming home. We would free the land and the land would free us from this thing called the diaspora. Right. Um, you see this influence in the kibbutz movement, the Moshav, um, uh, left-wing Zionism today, the left-wing political parties take their cues uh, from this ideological movement. Um, there's much to say, but I, I need to keep moving on here. Um, summing up labor Zionism. Jews are not Josh, anchored. If I could just yep. interject one thing, I mean, Please. this um, labor... Zionism cannot be understated in terms of its influence on Israeli politics and history. The, the labor yeah. movement, uh, the yeah. labor party, ruled the coalition of Israel until the yeah. election of Menachem Begin. And what year was that? 1975, something like that? Yeah, 76, 77. Yeah, yeah. Um, 77. Um, absolutely. You're 100% right. Um, uh, even though Ben Gurion, who will come up here in a minute, was not himself entirely part of the labor Zionist movement. He sort of built his own practical Zionism out of a few. Um, his political block was was dominated by the influence of the key, especially the kibbutz movement, and they were the labor Zionists. They were the first elite of the Israeli society. They were the pioneers, the brave, the handsome. Right? They you know they worked in their khaki uniforms, but they were beautiful. They were muscled. They were these tanned Jews. They were the ultimate example of the new Jew. They weren't sitting in a yeshiva. They weren't pale. They weren't sickly. They weren't, they weren't persecuted. They were strong, right? They were themselves. They were free. Right? And this labor Zionism is a huge impact. And it's still here with us. Um, but another movement that we'll get to in a second um, has been the politically dominant over the last 40 years. So um, so moving from religious to uh, from labor Zionism, excuse me, to religious Zionism. Religious Zionism is is uh connected to this gentleman here named Avraham Yitzchak HaKohen Kuk. You can just call him Harav Kuk. That's how everyone refers to him here, right? Harav Kuk. And Harav Kuk is the ideological uh, grandfather of, of um, religious Zionism. He takes his inspiration, as I mentioned, from uh, people like Alkali and Kalisher that I mentioned, uh, as I said earlier. Um, and he had sort of a twofold struggle, right? The, the majority of organized and early Zionist thought comes from secular sources. The Chada'am, Borachov, Gordon, Hertz, all the people have, they've lived, they live secular. Perhaps they were raised Orthodox or trained in Orthodox settings, but they themselves are no longer religious Jews. As you can see, this is, he's a rabbi, right? He's, this is a religious Jew. And, and um, what, Cook does is while there are religious people joining the Zionist movement, he gives it form. He gives religious Zionism form. And remember, the religious Zionism has to overcome two things. The religious tradition that says we can't go to ourselves, the land of Israel, we need to wait for God. And, it all, and he also has to fight against the secular forces within traditional Zionism. And he does this beautifully. Um, I, I think this is a great example for, for anyone, uh, you know, working in uh, to look at this and see how he, he, how he did these, these dances and got to where he wanted to. So this is how, um, this is how he, he responds to this claim of Zionism being, Zionism being a secular religion. Um, he, he responds and he says, Zionism was not merely a political movement by secular Jews. It was actually a tool of God to promote his scheme and to initiate the return of the Jews to their homeland, the land he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God wants the children of Israel to return to their home in order to establish, and this is key, a Jewish sovereign state in which Jews can live according to the laws of Torah and Halakha, rabbinical law, and commit the mitzvot of Eretz Yisrael, commandments that can only be done in the land of Israel. Moreover, to cultivate the land of Israel was a mitzvah by itself and should be carried out. Therefore, settling Israel is an obligation of the religious Jews and helping Zionism is actually following God's will. He said, okay. The, the rabbinical law said what it did, but listen, these secular Jews think that they're going on their own way. They're going because they reach because of the power of the individual. No, 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 no. My friends, you've misread this. This is all God's plan. 
The secular Jews didn't know they were receiving God's call, but they did. And now that they've received God's call without knowing it, we know God's call. And so we need to act accordingly and work with them to be partners in this movement. Partners not only with the secular Zionists, but also to be partners with God. Because he writes a beautiful thing that we that we in the Reform Movement use today. He describes the state of Israel as in Hebrew, reshit smichat gulatenu, the beginning of the, the rooting of our redemption. It's this beautiful Hebrew phrase, right? That we, that we all hope this place will eventually be. But he's the one that attributes this to the land of Israel. And that's how he pushes back against secular. But how does he, how does he get around the, the centuries old rabbinic ban on establishing a Jewish state? Well, this he writes thusly. Um, uh, secular Zionists may think they do it for political, national, or socialist reasons, but in fact, the actual reason for them coming to resettle in Israel is a religious Jewish spark in their soul, planted by God. Without their knowledge, they are contributing to the divine scheme and actually committing a great mitzvah. The role of the religious Zionists is to help them establish a Jewish state and churn, turn the religious spark in them into a great light. They should show them that, that the real source of Zionism and the longed-for Zion, Zion is Judaism and teach them Torah with love and kindness. In the end, they will understand that the laws of Torah are key to true harmony and a social state that will be a light for the nations and bring salvation to the world. And he says, listen, friends, they saw the Nitzot, they saw a spark, right? We have the light. The light is the Torah. And so it's our job to bring them closer, to bring us closer to them and them closer to us so we can create this Jewish, um, yeah, again, the beginning of our redemption, right? He he reimagines the rabbinical prohibition into a partnership with God, right? God and people working together to fulfill God's promise of redemption for the Jews one day. Again, just moving forward, there's more to say, but just to keep moving forward because we're running short on time here. Um, problem for religious Zionism is that modernity is not cured Jew hatred and has pulled Jews away from Judaism, right? Again, with the mainstream Zionism being heavily secular. And the solution for all this is a Jewish state based on Jewish law, based on the Torah, and based on halakha. And the means of action for him were aliyah, right? Saying to religious Jews, it is okay to move to the land of Israel. It is okay to create religious settlements. In fact, his teachings and his disciples will create the religious um, kibbutz movement, the religious moshav movement. They will create religious communities on land and do some truly incredible things um, because there are certain... Uh, Mitzvot, certain commandments you can only do here in the land of Israel. There's some amazing things that have happened on the religious kibbutz. And again, a topic for another time. Just keep coming up with great things to talk about. And then this word kiyuv in Hebrew, which literally means um, making closer. He wanted to bring religious Jews closer to secular Jews. He wanted to bring secular Jews closer to religion. That was part of his ultimate vision. Um, Last but very not least, we'll move into our fifth category, which we'll call revisionist Zionism. And it's um, uh, the word revision. The reason it's called revision is that this is a, in the 1920s, it's a word popular with um, nationalist movements in Europe that wanted to revise a certain treaty or agreement that had been reached because they thought it was uh, unfair or unjust or incorrect. Vladimir Zev Jabotinsky, he's born Vladimir Jabotinsky, he's born in 1880 um, in Odessa, the hub of the Eastern uh, European uh, Haskalah. Uh, he becomes part of the Jewish intelligentsia. He, he um, is educated in Italy um, and returns to Odessa in 1902 um, in between uh, at a time when violence in Eastern Europe against Jews is quite common. And only a year before the Kishniev program of, pogrom of 1903, be one of the most deadly and consequential uh, pogroms of all time. Um, when he re returns back to Eastern Europe, he immediately starts um, organizing Jewish self-defense organizations. Um, he himself is selected as a delegate to the Zionist Congress in 1903, representing the Eastern parties that are more right-wing, more religious, uh, more uh, um, uh, more bound uh, to Jewish tradition. Uh, um, and um, he, when Herzl dies, like I said, Chaim Weizmann and Chada'am take over the WZO, but Jabotinsky at that time basically becomes the figurehead of right-wing Zionism until his death in 1940. Um, the revisionist party, his, his party isn't born until 1923. 
After World War I, we'll talk about uh, this more uh, in our future sessions, the British take over the land of Israel and hold it in what's called the British Mandate. And under their mandate, they created um, a Zionist um, organization in uh, Mandate Palestine, part of it being the Executive Council, the people that would make decisions for the Jewish um, uh, community here in the land of Israel. And he was, Jabotinsky is elected to that council in 1920. Over the next three years, he gets in a lot of fights, mainly with a fellow named David Ben-Gurion, who is a, a, an absolute ideological opposite of Jabotinsky in almost everything. And in 1923, he gets so fed up with Ben-Gurion and his cronies within the council that he leaves. He separates and he creates his own organization um, um, called the Alliance of Revisionist Zionists, and alongside its youth group, which you may have heard of, Beitar. Um, the same group from which um, Beitar Yerushalayim, the soccer team in Jerusalem, that's quite well known, takes its name. Um, interestingly, Beitar is named after um, Joseph Trumpledore, uh, the same fellow I mentioned as part of labor Zionism, but he is killed in a battle in a place called Tel Chai, way up in the north of uh, what's Israel today in 1921. And he's made into a martyr right across the Zionist spectrum, but especially the revisionists. They accept him because it's rumored that uh, Trumpledore with his last breath after being, he'd lost uh, an arm in an earlier war and he was still fighting. With his last breath, he let out the words, Tov lemut bad it's good to die for our country. And he's adopted as this martyr, this mythical figure, especially by revisionist Zionists. And Jabotinsky walks his parties out. He says, we're not going to participate in this anymore. You all are uh, placating the British. You all are, are surrendering to outside effects. We can't do any of this, right? That's that's not what we need to do. We need to take a harder stance on certain things. And so the ideology, um, the, the big um, ideological view is that Ben-Gurion was taking more of a, um, a, a practical view to political situations. But the, the uh, revisionist said, no, we need to demand a Jewish state on both banks of the Jordan River, exactly like it was in biblical times. Um, he saw an opportunity to use the ally, uh, the British as an ally to do this. Over time, he soured on them and he decided to uh, start taking, uh, at one point he even encourages Jews to take up arms against the British while they're in the land of Israel. Um, he is opposed to socialism. He is not a socialist. He believes uh, in the individual, of the, uh, the liberty of the individual, championed the middle class. Um, he saw um, the uh, socialist ideologies of, of, um, of Ben-Gurion and others as um, you know, antithetical to what uh, a strong uh, liberal democratic nation state would be in the future. Um, and, uh, and and so these, amongst many things, led to all sorts of disagreements uh, with Ben-Gurion and his camp. Um, and also uh, with, you need to give credit where credit is due, as opposed to other Zionist streams, uh, you know, sometimes uh, uh, to, to make, uh, you know, a complex subject, to put it into two sentences here, in other streams of Judaism, um, the other inhabitants living here in the land of Israel were overlooked. In revisionist Zionism, Jabotinsky says from the get-go, from his writings, he says, listen, the Arabs aren't just going to let us build a country here. There's going to be a clash with them, and we need to be prepared for it. Um, and he saw this as meaning taking more aggressive stance towards the Arabs, towards the British who were here as the power at the time. Um, and And this becomes an incredibly influential movement. Um, and um, so just again, to sum up uh, the revisionist Zionism and to bring us to our conclusion. So the problem again, much like political Zionism, Jews will never be accepted in Europe. Okay. So the creation of a Jewish state, crucially on both sides of the Jordan River, a maximalist Jewish state to mean maximum uh, Jewish political power. The means of, acts, of action were many, diplomatic, making Aliyah, a uh, strong middle class, a well-trained fighting force, right? Being prepared for whatever clash was coming um, against uh, against the Arabs. So let me just say one more thought about Zionism. We'll try to sum up everything we spoke about today. So these movements all played out. We're all presented in print, in newspapers, in books, um, in uh, boots on the ground. Um, uh, Beitar youth movements sprung up all, all over Europe. Left-wing Zionist youth movements sprung up all over so all of these groups were competing with each other. And thankfully, they all reached different parts of the population, which all allowed people access into the Zionist movement. And because this really 
really was a lark in a dream, rebuilding a Jewish nation state after 2,000 years. I mean, it was an incredibly optimistic, an incredible idea. People were able to, to connect to it in many different ways, um, which ended up creating an incredibly varied settlement patterns here in the land of Israel, uh, patterns of political organization, which created a, a, a uh, diverse, complex, and really healthy society. Um, a lot to be said about uh, our, our, our imperfections here, but um, I think we can say that. Um, these five stream Zionism were incredibly influential and we can still see them here in Israel. But into the 30s and into the founding of the state, two camps are going to emerge. One represented by David Ben-Gurion, right? With his more left-wing Zionist, labor Zionism, political Zionist, uh, groups called the general Zionists that don't really fall into one of these uh, um, connected their, their uh, political and, and national hopes to David Ben-Gurion's camp. And his great rival, Jabotinsky, would die suddenly from a heart attack in New York State in 1940. And his, the person that emerges um, to take leadership is a man named Menachem Begin, who will become 30 years later uh, the prime minister of Israel. Um, but for 30 years, um, for decades, let's just say, David Ben-Gurion and, and, and Begin will take over and will become the two main camps, duking it out with, with this idea of what is Zionism going to be? What does it mean and what will it be in the future? A few thoughts to sum up. Um, all of these streams, all the thinkers, all of their ideas have impact. And in the two next two week sessions, I'll do my utmost to point out things where they are and where they come from, right? We said today that Kibbutzim come from out of labor Zionism, right? Tel Aviv is sort of a, this beautiful uh, um, uh, implementation of, of a cultural Zionist stream, right? Hebrew is the spoken language. School, the 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 high school at the central of all everything, at the center of all that they do, um, but creating a Hebrew metropolis. Um, um, so that's one idea. Second idea is that, um, as I said, all can be seen at work in Israel today, right? They're all still around. Um, Harav Cook, his yeshiva is right at the entrance of Jerusalem. Every time I go back in the city, I walk right past uh, Yeshivat Harav, and that's that's his organization. Um, he's no longer living, of course, but his, um, um, his inheritors have continued that work. Um, and, uh, you know, we still have a labor party uh, here in Israel that, that traces its roots back to people like Borachov and Gordon. So these, they're still very much present today. And when I tell this story and while I was re researching this and I, what I hope I said, or I hope you got through my, my chair today was that um, an organized ideology was created in 1897 at the World Zionist Congress. 51 years later, a modern nation state is born. Some incredible things had to happen in those five decades in order to make that happen. Um, we, of course, will give a lot of credit to the men and women on the ground who did the work, who plowed the fields, who, uh, you know, pulled, pulled the, uh, you know, rakes or whatever it was, who built, built the buildings and um, brought clean water where it needs to be. But that these ideas um, and these thinkers were able to take uh, nothing, right? This idea, they, they, an idea is a beautiful thing, but it's, it's nothing material. And to turn it through 50 years into something material and to take these thoughts from paper and, and your mind to pen to paper and then into reality, it's an incredible thing to take the Hebrew language for something not spoken to something alive and breathing and thriving and shaping a nation. It's a remarkable thing. Um, and I think I can leave it there today. I know I've said a lot. Um, I purposely try to bring as much as I can to these hours because I know that your time is precious and I want to make sure that this is engaging. Um, if there are any questions, feel free to ask. Uh, feel free to send them to Rabbi Dreyfus of the week, or you can ask him. He can pass along my information. Um, I'd love to hear from you throughout the week. Um, and um, yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing to spend part of your Sunday with me. Um, thank you again, Rabbi Dreyfus, for the opportunity to, to teach here. Um, and if that's all, and with your all's permission, we'll sign off and we'll, uh, we'll move into next week. Mm-hmm.
Josh, thank you so much. This was truly a wonderful class, and I just so appreciate your framing um, of, of like 50 years of history into one hour. So impressive and just uh, such a great frame for us to view it through. And can't wait to see you back next week. If y'all have questions, my email is rabbijeff at timemphis.org, and I'll pass them all along to Josh. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. See everyone soon. Bye-bye.